0: O God, our leader and guide, in the waters of baptism, you bring us to new birth to live as your children. Strengthen our faith in your promises that by your Spirit we may lift up your life to all the world through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. You may be seated.
1: Today are from the Old Testament lesson, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 4. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the ones who curse you, I will curse. Families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. Lot went with him. Word of God, word of life. Thanks be Second lesson is from the Episcopal lesson, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, 13 to 17. What then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestors according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by the works. He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believes God, and it was reckoned in him as righteousness. Now no one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift but something due. But to the one who without work trust him, who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. The promise that we inherit, the world did not come to Abraham, are his descendants. For the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the inheritance of the law who are to be their heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it depends on faith, in the order that the promise may rest on grace. Be guaranteed to all descendants, not only adherent of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of all of us, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God, in whom we believe, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. Word of God, word of life. Thanks <laughs>
0: this until after when I'm listening to a poster or something, but um, I want to, on behalf of all of you, thank all these talented musicians uh, who for giving up their time and their talents to the church in this way. We give thanks to God for their ministry of music to us and with us. So thank you very much. This morning we will take a somewhat different form for this message because the passage, gospel passage contains the verse one could argue is the most well-known verse in the entire Bible, perhaps, John 3.16. I felt it was necessary to be sure that the verse that is repeated so often out of context is placed in the context of this very important exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus. The idea for it came when I was working on the sermon and started thinking about how important the entirety of the text is to fully understand it. This gospel story from the Gospel of John is a text rich in imagery, irony, theology, and sophisticated wordplay. The late biblical scholar Gail O'Day, one of my favorite scholars on the Gospel of John, warns us not to, as she says, distill this text to its essence or paraphrase its substance. In other words, keep the whole thing together and keep the 16th verse in context. Because if not, if it is not kept in context with the rest of the passage, it robs the Gospel story of its richness. We must preserve the linkage between the story of Nicodemus and the discourse that follows it, including verse 16. According to the famous biblical commentator William Barclay, the story follows a pattern common to the Gospel of John. A person asks a question, Jesus gives a hard-to-understand answer, the person misunderstands the hard-to-understand answer, Jesus Jesus then answers even more cryptically. So when that happens, a discourse follows. So let's get to the text and begin working through it. Listen to verses 1 and 2. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can do these signs that you are doing apart from the presence of God. Well, one thing is for sure, Nicodemus comes with impressive credentials. We are very almost certain that he was a Pharisee. A Pharisee in that time was both a judge and a religious scholar, and therefore a leader in the ancient Jewish community. Possibly we believe that Nicodemus could have been a member of the Sanhedrin, or the Sendrin, as some people say. The equivalent of our Supreme Court and Congress all rolled into one. So kind of a VIP. He came to Jesus by night, it says in verse 2. The fact that Nicodemus comes by night is significant. Nicodemus probably comes at night so that he will not be seen by others and judged for coming to see Jesus when he was supposed to be this powerful leader with all the answers. He's protecting his own reputation with the community. But Nicodemus approaches Jesus respectfully, calling him a scholar, a teacher, and affirming his work as evidence that Jesus is working by the power of God. Jesus, however, has refused to trust people who believed because of his signs. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Then verse 3, he answers it. Jesus answers it. He, Jesus answers him and says, very truly I tell you. Always be careful when Jesus says, very truly I tell you. No one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above or born again. Yes, that's where this passage, that, that's where that phrase comes from. So, whoa, Jesus' answer is rather abrupt, particularly in view of Nicodemus' respectful introduction, isn't it? No one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above or born again. Jesus is not talking about anything that most Jews of the time were not familiar with. The Jewish people considered proselytes that's what they called new believers, new people who had come, just come to uh, Israel and Judaism to be reborn upon their conversion to Judaism so that they would, they would have recognized this notion of re, be, being reborn. But they would have rejected the notion completely that if they were good Jews, they didn't need to be reborn because they were already good Jews. So, so, sorry to be a little more technical than I usually am in the sermon, but it's important to this overall understanding. The Greek word carries a double meaning here. It means both anew and from above. So, born again, born anew, born from above, all the same word can be translated all those ways. This ambiguity, I believe, enriches the verse, not takes away from it, must be born anew or born from above or born again. Well, it's most likely both and, all of those things. So we need to be careful that it's not just born again or born anew, but both born again and born from above or born anew. Let me comment about how we understand born again. For some of us, born again has a question that we're not real comfortable with answering. You know, someone for sure has come up to you at some time in your life and said, are you born again? How did you answer? So well, I have a good friend who gets it all the time because he's an Arab Christian. Other Arab Arabs who are younger and were born Muslim come up with the notion that, that and then they then they come to Christianity. They come up to my friend Father Shakur and they say, "Are you born again?" And he says, "No, I'm a first born Christian." Because he was born basically before, you know, when he was born, he was born into the Christian faith. He wasn't Muslim first and then converted to Christianity because the the Palestinian Christians are way older than the Palestinian Muslims. So that's one answer. The other answer is, you know, sometimes after you hear the, are you born again, it's sometimes followed by some sort of indication or allusion to some form of understood judgment of those who do not automatically say, oh yes, I'm born again. Or don't immediately claim to be born again by the person asking. Been there to that one too? (laughs) where the person looks at you and goes, what do you mean you're not born again? Or something like that. And that's okay. But likewise, we must be sensitive to those among us who have had a true conversion experience or a return to faith who use the term born again. To use that term to describe what happened to them, we need to honor the experience and give thanks to God for that new or renewed presence in his or her life. I love to hear the stories. It serves to reinforce for me that we serve a living and loving God. A living and loving God who is so clearly at work in the world around us. So for me it's the definition of awesome God, all of those things together. Now verse 4, Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time in the mother's womb and be born? That is a pretty odd one, right? How can anyone be born after having grown old? Nicodemus interprets Jesus' words as having to do with physical birth rather than spiritual rebirth. Nicodemus would find it natural to think of the proselyte, a new believer, remember? A new Jewish believer being born again upon converting the Jewish faith. But in actuality, it's unnatural to think of Jews as needing rebirth, as I said earlier, in Nicodemus' understanding. But Jesus said that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he or she is born again, or born from above. This robs Nicodemus of the initiative and places it in God's hands. No matter how much Nicodemus knows about the law, or the prophets, or any of the religious texts, no matter how careful Nicodemus tries to obey Torah law, something more is required. What is that? His rebirth. So in verse 5 it says, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you you must be born from above. Well, that certainly is a direct answer. No beating around the bush there. No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. There are three possible understandings of water here. Water for purification, something every Jew understood, understood, and we kind of understand. Water representing procreation, birth or rebirth. Or the Christian understanding that water symbolizes baptism, baptism into Christ. I don't think we need to rule out any of these. There's some element of each in this passage. I I think aspects of all three are what Jesus is actually talking about. Then turning to verse 8, the wind blows where it chooses and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. The wind, or in Greek, pneuma, the spirit, also the same word, pneuma. Pneuma has this double meaning, a rich ambiguity and a both-and feeling. The pneuma blows where it chooses. The spirit blows where it chooses. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Now back to Nicodemus and how he's now getting confused in verse 9. Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel? In other words, he's acknowledging that he thinks he's a pretty important dude and he knows everything. Are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? How can these things be, is what Nicodemus says, right? He doesn't understand Jesus or chooses not to understand Jesus. Maybe Nick was worried about how he would look to the other members of the Sanhedrin if he showed he understood what Jesus was talking about. Later, however, Nicodemus is one of the rare people who stays with Jesus the whole time. Jesus will defend Jesus in 1 John 7, verse 50, and then... It's Nicodemus who assists Simon of Cyrene in first claiming Jesus' body from the Roman authorities after the crucifixion and then making sure that Jesus received a swift and proper burial. In verse 10 it says, are you a teacher? When Nicodemus came to Jesus, he acknowledged Jesus as a teacher, not a teacher, but teacher, giving the sense that Jesus is teacher among teachers, now, when Jesus talks back to Nicodemus, he, he says, the teacher, using the definite article. With the sense that Nicodemus is a great teacher, but not the teacher, teacher among teachers. How is it that the great teacher of Israel, Dr. Nicodemus, cannot understand what Jesus is trying to is trying to say. The teacher of teachers is trying to teach him. Sounds like a tongue twister, doesn't it? Well, to be sure, Jesus wastes no time in telling Nicodemus and telling him directly in verses 11 and 12. Always be ready when Jesus starts out this way, as I said. Here he goes again. Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? So let's break that one down. When Nicodemus came to Jesus, he said, we know. Now Jesus says, that which we know. Jesus knows heavenly things because having descended from heaven, he's seen them, it says in verse 13. And to testify to what we have seen, the testimony of an eyewitness has authority, doesn't it, even in court? How can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? Nicodemus doesn't even understand earthly things, so the human realm of his, that he experiences every day. How in the world can Nicodemus understand heavenly things? God's realm. Then in verse 13, Jesus sets himself apart from Nicodemus and everyone else when he says, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So Jesus is now talking about himself in the third person. Verses 14 and 15. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. These verses answer Nicodemus's question in verse 4. Both the lifted up serpent and the lifted up Jesus confer new life on those who look upon or believe in them. Now I can hear some of you saying, what does that mean? Well here it is. In just as Moses lifted up the serpent serpent in the wilderness, the story of the serpent on a pole quickly brings up images of crucifixion and being lifted up on a cross the way Jesus was. That's the way the story goes, we know that. So with that clearly in mind, Jesus says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, though that whoever believes in him, in Jesus, may have eternal life. There seem to be several parallels in the Moses story and the Jesus story. However, the bronze snake on the pole was simply and only a piece of bronze, this hunk of metal that had no saving power in and of itself. That is the difference. Do you see it? Jesus himself is the source of saving power. Let us also think about lifted up for a moment. Lifted up has multiple meanings in this gospel. It refers to Jesus' cross. But it also refers to the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, and you know, Jesus rising up to heaven and finally to the glorification of Jesus as our Lord and Savior, who gives us and grants us eternal life and forgives us all our sin. That everyone who believes in him may have eternal life, see? This is the first mention of eternal life in the Gospels, where it is mentioned between 17 times and 15 times from the lips of Jesus. And note that there are no limitations at all on who can believe. It simply says that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Not every Lutheran, not every UCC, not every Baptist, not every Catholic, but everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Eternal life is not defined as living forever either. It is also a life lived in the presence of God. Now we come to that verse. Many of you can recite this verse, I'm sure. So instead of me reading this one, let's recite it together. John 3.16, here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but they have eternal life. See how many of you knew that? Pretty amazing, right? How many of you know the 17th verse? A few. The 17th verse is integral, and we'll get to that in a minute, but it's so important to be in the context. That's good all by itself, but it's so much better when it's connected, and we'll get, I'll tell you why. So let's take it apart. For God so loved the world, for God so loved the cosmos, all everything around him. This is an amazing statement for the Gospel of John, which, as my professor Walter Bruderman, says, quote, generally operates with a negative view of the world. That's the Gospel of John. Not because the world is inherently evil, but because the world rejects Jesus. This is also it, it, this is also amazing to Nicodemus. When Nicodemus hears this, he understands that God loves Israel and God loves his ancient Jewish community, which he has been taught and believes are God's chosen people. But Nicodemus would find it very difficult to believe that God loves the world. The whole I would also add here that this is a great challenge in the world today among all kinds of nations and among all kinds of Christians, including our own, who have the same view about individual countries as Nicodemus has about the chosen of Israel. And today, many of these nations spend all kinds of time, and Lord knows how many billions or trillions of dollars, to prove it and to enforce it. The amazing part of coming is coming. Jesus addresses just this very notion in the next portion of the verse: may have eternal life. So it sounds like we're already, we already have it. Eternal life, that is. The already received gift. Eternal life as relationship with God beginning now. So how many of you always think of eternal life as something that happens after you die? Well, I'm here to tell you that this is is not true. Eternal life begins when you profess your belief in in God and Jesus Christ, because it's a continuum. If you believe that, your physical body dies, but you don't. Your spirit goes on and, and continues on. And so, therefore, it's an already received gift as part of your baptism. Eternal life as a relationship with God beginning now, here, today. Now comes that 17th verse. Indeed, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So it adds that part that, you know, for God so loved the world, it kind of sounds exclusive and, and everything. Now he makes it inclusive by saying that he didn't send God in the world to condemn the world. He came into the world so that all the world might be saved through him. This verse is the best verse to illustrate the point of contextualizing John 3.16 in the passage as a whole. After telling us that God not only loves Israel, but the whole world, God states God's purpose in sending Jesus the Son, the Redeemer, not to condemn the world, condemn the world, but save it. If it is necessary for God to send the Son to save the world, it must be that the world needs saving, right? It must mean that there are things happening in the world that indicate that the world is indeed lost. So are you with me so far? <laughs> Furthermore, the Son's work is only effective and redeeming in the, if the world accepts this amazing and awesome salvation that's offered. So that's all of it. That's the whole passage. Okay, now we're finally ready to hear the gospel lesson. The gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel according to John, the third chapter, verses 3 through 17. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, a powerful dude. Came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered Nicodemus and he said to him, Here it is, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above or born again. Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can we how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, here he goes again, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can can these things be? He's really confused. Jesus answered Nicodemus and he said, are you a teacher of Israel? One of the best, most powerful teachers in all of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Here he goes again. Very truly I tell you, Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. So there you have it. Nicodemus, Nighttime and John 3.16. Thanks be to God who was and is and is to be again in the name of the Creator, the Redeemer and the Holy Spirit that sustains us. Amen congregational meeting of Jerusalem-Western Salisbury Church. A union church is um, is, in order, is uh, declared in session and um, there's a quorum for both congregations present. Let us now sing our final hymn and then we'll go right into to, uh, the meeting. <laughs>